When I look in the mirror, I don't see wrinkles. When I look in the mirror, I see hair on my head, not my shoulder. And hello, hello, hello. This is Adrian Berg, and this is Generation Bold, the Fountain of Truth. And this next guest, our guest today, is one of the great reasons that I have this platform, because I'm really honored to have with me today Dr. Aubrey David Nicholas Jasper de Grey. Now, he is a biogerontologist. He's the chief science officer of the Sense Research Foundation. He's an author. We'll be talking about his latest book. And he's really somebody who might truly change your life. I say that often about my guests, but this one, uh, Dr. DeGray, may allow you to live decades and decades longer. His latest book, Ending Aging, the rejuvenation breakthroughs that could reverse human aging in our lifetime. I've heard him speak many times. And Dr. DeGray, it almost feels to me like uh, bringing Einstein to uh, teach me about physics. But I'm, I'm going to try to follow you as best I can. Thanks so much for being with us today. Well, thank you for having me on the show. And I assure you I'll keep it nice and simple because it actually is simple what I have to say. Well, it really is. And I, I do want you to know the book Ending Aging um, is very, very readable. And you will be surprised at how much you as an individual, even if you're not in the field of science any way, shape, or form, will get out of it for your own self. But before we, we go any further, the name of the book is Ending Aging. Uh, Dr. DeGray's life's work is Ending Aging. But what is aging? There are some buzzwords I'd like you to explain to people, uh, Doctor. Words like senescence and telomeres, and how does that fit in so we can understand how we age a little bit? Yeah, well, um, yes, we tried to write the book so that it would be accessible to a general audience. But, of course, the science of aging and the science of how to, how to prevent aging and indeed to rejuvenate people is really complicated science. And therefore, in order to write a book that was truly informative and didn't cut any corners, we had to pack in a great deal of information. So I think the book is standing the test of time. Of course, I wrote it more than a decade ago. But all of the enormous amount of progress that has happened in the meantime has been pretty much exactly the progress that we predicted would happen. So we don't even need really to do a, you know, a second book, uh, which is nice. Yeah, which so, is true. Um, and it, I, yeah, I just want to say very quickly, there's, uh, MIT has a, a magazine app right now. It's called Old Age is Over. And really, it's everything you said a decade ago. And it's on the popular newsstands. Anybody can pick up a copy. And that's what makes me think that you're getting somewhere. It is now a mainstream to talk about aging as a disease and the, and the end of old age. And I, I have learned myself that the word senescence, as I said, is an important word if I'm saying it correctly. I think people have to know what that means and what it has to do with aging. Sure, yes. So it's actually normally pronounced senescence. Um, and it actually, has, it actually has two meanings within this field. One meaning is it's used simply as a synonym for aging, which is, some people think, more precise because it specifically means the health problems associated with aging. So, in other words, to distinguish from the good things about getting older, like, you know, becoming more knowledgeable and such like. Uh, so that's one way in which the word is used. But the other way it refers not to people or indeed whole, you know, living, living, living organisms, but rather just to the cells that people are made up of. 
there are um, certain things that can go wrong inside cells that make them somehow you know, behave badly. And in some cases, what that means is the cell uh, creates toxic molecules and generally poisons its environment in the body. Um, and the body may try to eliminate that, such cells, but it doesn't always succeed. And a, a lot of those cells have um, been given this name, senescent cells. Um, this is a name that comes from research done back in the 1960s. And it's not actually a very good name, to be perfectly honest, I don't think. But senescent cells are very much in the news right now because over the past few years, there's been really immense progress in developing medicines that can eliminate these cells and thereby do some of the job that we want to do to rejuvenate people. So let, let's another word that is a buzzword that many listeners do know is telomeres. Um, does it relate to senescence? senescence? I'm getting it right. And, um, or, or is it a separate, separate issue of aging? Well, so in order to talk about um, the, the kind of, you know, the classification of bits of aging, one has to be rather careful because aging is, of course, a side effect of being alive. In other words, a side effect of the normal functioning of the body, which is a network of interlinked, interlocking processes. So telomeres are the sequences of DNA at the ends of our chromosomes that protect the, the chromosomes from essentially from fraying, and um, those telomeres get shorter during life. There is actually a connection to senescent cells because one of the ways in which cells can become senescent is by dividing repeatedly and getting to the point where, as a result of cell division, the telomeres get too short and the cell gets unhappy as a result. Um, so that's one way in which cells can become senescent. But telomeres are interesting in a whole bunch of ways. They can cause other problems. However, also, it turns out that maintaining telomeres may have downsides as well, namely that in cancer, cells, of course, are dividing more than we would like them to, and they don't become senescent. Instead, they carry on going, and we just get too many cells, and we die from that problem. So we want to somehow promote telomere shortening in cancers, and avoid it elsewhere. And people are still working on ways to square that circle. Now, let's, let's take a look at this. We're dealing with what you just said in your own words. Um, you know, it's part of life. Aging is part of life. And yet, there is a movement. You're part of it. There are many, many people I respect. I'm going to a new conference uh, in Washington, D.C. on Metabesity, where everybody's speaking also will agree that aging should be labeled a disease. And yet we think of it as the part of life that perhaps we're looking forward to or we're dreading, but as inevitable. What is that controversy about? Is it simply about being able to get funded for research so that if aging is a disease, we get more funding for aging research? Or is that much more conceptual than that? Well, certainly funding is a big practical problem. The, there is no question that a lot of this work to develop medicines that will keep people healthy and youthful late in life is limited in terms of how rapidly it proceeds by lack of financial support. And therefore, if there were more enthusiasm and more comprehension of all of this among decision makers and um, you know, policy makers and so on, then I believe that absolutely we would make 
greater progress, we would hasten the research, and we would save a lot of lives and alleviate an astronomical amount of suffering. So that is the practical, that is a really important practical aspect of this. Um, but I think, of course, in order to, um, you know, really understand the basis of that and to get people behind this crusade, we need to understand why they think differently in the first place. And that is really, in my mind, a case of denial. It's a case of having had to live with this horrible thing called aging since the beginning of civilization, and that society has constructed this arsenal of um, tricks, if you like, to put aging out of one's mind and to get on with one's miserably short life and make the best of it, rather than being preoccupied by this terrible thing. And, you know, so um, talking about aging as somehow not a disease is kind of a, a part of the way in which people convince themselves that it's not amenable, even in principle, to medical intervention. And that's simply not true. Whether you call aging a disease or not is kind of not really the issue. The issue is when you look at aspects of aging and you call some of them the diseases and not others, make an artificial distinction, because that kind of entrenches the incorrect idea that there are aspects of uh, health problems late in life which are not even in principle amenable to medical intervention. And that's giving up. You know, we have just a minute left in this segment. When we come back, we're going to talk about practical things that we can do, maybe even things that you do with regard to our health, our eating, our exercise. That really does make a difference. But I want to bring out the paradox here, and it's kind of a nice one. As we are growing older and we have more longevity, and as we feel better, as the baby boomers do, in their aging than most have felt and, and been more vigorous. Maybe we can look at aging as less fearful. And if we look at it as less fearful, Dr. DeGray, we might be ready to accept aging. And once we're ready to accept it, and here's the paradox in my mind, we're also willing to do what's necessary to get rid of it. Once we're too afraid uh, to age, and we can't even think about it in our culture, We'll never spend the money, the time, the effort, the public acceptance to look at aging and study it. But when we feel well, we can look it in the eye. We'll be right back. You may think that I'm full of it, but that doesn't bother me, not even a bit. Because I am happy and I freely admit I'm inappropriate for my age. Da-da-da-da. We are speaking today here at Generation Bowl, the Fountain of Truth, with Dr. Aubrey de Grey. I've heard him speak many times. Uh, he is a biomedical gerontologist, one of the big names in the field, and I'm just going to, uh, I don't care if he feels insulted by the fact that I think he is terrific or humbled by the fact, or he agrees, but I think knowing Dr. DeGray, he's heard that many, many times. Uh, he is the chief science officer of the Sense Research Foundation, and uh, he is the author of a book that I have read twice, and I admit to you I had to read it twice. It's called Ending Aging, the Rejuvenation Breakthroughs that Could Reverse Human Aging in Our Lifetime. And I read it twice, not because it wasn't understandable. It's very accessible. 
but with the first time to get it and the second time to take notes about what I ought to be doing to enhance my own long future, perhaps reverse aging, perhaps rejuvenate some of the damage that's already been done. So I want to throw that to you, Dr. DeGray. I mean, people are thinking uh, not only are they interested in the science, but they're really interested in the practical application of what you have learned and maybe what you do. So tell us what, maybe advice if you want to call it that, findings, however you would like to put it. Um, okay, so, well, really there are two main themes that I want to emphasize with regard to what we can do today to help us not get sick as we get older. Um, the first thing is a positive one, namely, there is a bunch of stuff that we can do, um, and certainly I'm all in favor of that. The main things that you've got to do are the things that I don't have to tell you because your mother told you. In other words, mm-hmm. like just don't smoke and don't get seriously overweight and you know, have a reasonably varied, balanced diet, stuff like that. Over and above that, there are, of course, other things in terms of, you know, watching what, what kind of diet one has, generally, you know, um, you know taking supplements and so on. And, uh, you know, these are things that are certainly worth pursuing to the extent that we can. But then I come to the second thing, which is more negative, namely that the benefits that we can achieve over and above just, you know, doing what your mother told you are actually really small compared to what we've seen in short-lived organisms in the laboratory. It's just a fact that there isn't very much additional postponement of the health problems of late life that can be achieved by these things. And moreover, the things that different people have to do to get to maximize their um, healthy life are actually different for different people uh, because it's a very personalized thing. So one can't really um, say anything generic about what to do, how to live, other than essentially pay attention to your body and do what works for you, which is you know, not a particularly profound message. Um, so really, the thing I want to emphasize is that the most important thing that one can do to improve one's chances of living a long, healthy life is to act to hasten the development of new medicines that don't yet exist, that will actually achieve what nothing that exists today can achieve in terms of uh, keeping people young and indeed rejuvenating them. And, of course, different people can do different things to hasten that research. You know, people like you, for example, can get me on air and get yeah. me to um, explain this to people. Then, you know, billionaires can put um, money into this. Uh, scientists, of, uh, whether junior or senior, can choose their research area to have the most impact in these areas. Um, and, of course, the general public, absolutely everyone, there's one thing that they can do, namely advocacy. Just if you understand that, aging is a problem that we have a duty to address medically, then persuade other people of the same thing. Um, people often say, oh dear, I don't, I'm not very wealthy, I can't support this. One thing I always point out is that the, um, you know, the, the less wealthy you are, the more people you know that are wealthier than you. And therefore, um, advocacy is something that everybody can do. And there is a movement toward this. Uh, 2008, Dr. DeGray, I wrote a financial book, How Not to Go Broke at 102. 
And I wanted to ask about this. I was already thinking about the issue of aging, uh, not just financially. And I had I had an opportunity to speak to Dr. Hayflick, who, you know, again, popularized the how of aging and the why of aging. And one of the things that he spoke about, this was just very briefly, was what you just talked about. Designer drugs, I believe was the word, that everybody is different and the things they have to do is different. So let me throw that back at you. In the laboratory, if the entire public would, would get together en masse and say, we really do want our research not to be bifurcated only for cancer or heart disease or diabetes, but we, we would like some money going into issues of aging, will what comes out of the lab be the same for everybody? Or again, will even uh, stopping aging or rejuvenation be different for each person as you see it as a scientist? So it turns out actually that the answer to that is rather um, heartening, that the most practical approach to keeping people healthy late in life with new medicines that are coming along soon is something that will be rather generic and will not have to be personalized nearly so much as the things that we have today. That's because the types of medicines that are going to work will be medicines that repair the damage that the body accumulates throughout life as a kind of a bunch of side effects of the body's normal operation. And that's a really important thing to take into account because these types of damage are the same in everybody. The only reason why some people die of cancer and other people die of heart attacks and other people die of Alzheimer's and so on is because of slight differences in the re relative rates at which different people accumulate different types of damage. There's no differences in what the damage is. And that means that generic therapies that simply repair these types of damage will actually work for everybody. Uh, you know, you may end up not even having to diagnose which one of these types of damage a particular person needs. You may as well just give everybody all the therapies and the worst that can happen is you're giving uh, sick people, some people, certain therapies twice as often as they need them. But that's that's basically harmless. So I see this as actually being minimally um, uh, personalizable. Well, I think that that is, certainly goes very far for the possibility that there is going to be a greater, more serious look at aging as a disease, not as an insult to us who are aged, but as a way of understanding that it all seems to be the same type of problem that manifests or expresses itself slightly differently in each person. When we come back, uh, let's, uh, we're going to look into the lab because, you know, your work is day-to-day -day science, research, and so on. Lots of things are happening in the lab. We hear about them. They infiltrate uh, the news once in a while, or there's a new drug or a new biotech uh, issue that comes up. We'll talk about that as soon as we come back. Don't go anywhere. You may think that I'm full of it, but that doesn't bother me, not even a bit, because I am happy, and I freely admit I'm inappropriate for my age. Da -da -da -da. I am happy, and I freely admit 
And hello, hello, hello. This is Adrian Berg, and this is Generation Bold, the Fountain of Truth. And uh, for those of you who want to listen to many, many years of radio broadcasting in the field of aging, simply go ahead and look at our website, generationboldradio.com. And if you would like to get pre-notifications of the different shows and podcasts that we are going to be broadcasting, just give us your email address, and you will get that information along with information on the new blogs and everything else that's going on. I speak everywhere, and one of the places is Leading Age that's coming up, and uh, the Life Planning Network is coming up, many, many others. So if you would like to attend any of these, if you are a listener, you usually get a complimentary invitation. But i got to know you're there. Right now we are speaking to Dr. Aubrey de Grey, uh, who I have uh, met uh, just as I sat in the audience very quietly in awe of what he's telling us, but uh, he is an adjunct professor of the Moscow Institute of Physics and Technology, a fellow at the Gerontological Society of America, the American Aging Association, the Institute for Ethics and Emerging Technologies, so much more. You might have seen him on 60 Minutes, or if you go to TED uh, on YouTube, you can hear his TED Talks. I don't have a long enough show to tell you everything that he's done. He is a biomedical gerontologist, and he is the chief science officer of the Sense Research Foundation. Now, you can learn more simply by going to the website, sens.org, sens.org, or reading and reading both. Uh, His new book, which is not so new, he tells us, Ending Aging, The Rejuvenation Breakthroughs That Could Reverse Human Aging in Our Lifetime. And it's not so new because nothing much has changed. So I'm going to throw this over to you, Dr. DeGray. Uh, you, you labor really in the lab. And let's look at the lab. We do hear uh, this experiment, this breakthrough, but we really don't know what's on the cutting edge, and you do. So what are you working on now, and what are you most excited about uh, in terms of results? Well, first of all, uh, let me... Um challenge the last of the things that you said a moment ago, which is that not much has changed since we wrote this book more than a decade ago. Masses of stuff has changed. There's been a huge amount of progress, and that will be stuff that I'm most excited about that I'll mention in a second. That is good news. Yes, it is. And the reason why I think you've got that wrong is simply because what has not changed is the strategy the approach to um, actually addressing the health problems of late life. Uh, In other words, what has changed is that we have made great strides in actually implementing that strategy and developing the medicines that will actually work. But all of that progress that we've seen in the past decade has been pretty much exactly what we predicted in the book. So that means that we don't really need to write a new book. We just, you know, know, new problems have emerged. The, really, the only surprises that have happened in the past decade have been good surprises that have ended up you know, providing new techniques that make it easier to do the things that we talked about in the book than we thought they would have been um, a decade ago. All right, so, so what even progress better been? progress than expected. So what has the progress been and what's coming next? Well, <coughs> excuse me. Um, in order to answer that question, I think I first have to... Um, explain why the book is structured in the way it is. The the core of the book 
is actually divided into eight chapters, um, of which, or but the first one, are dealing with a particular type of damage that the body accumulates. So we have seven different types of damage, and each chapter discusses what this damage is, how it contributes to the health problems of late life, and, of course, how we are going to address it. And in each case, the way in which we're going to address it will be not by preventing the body from creating it, but rather by actually repairing the damage, eliminating the damage from the body after it's been created. That's a much more practical approach than trying to clean up the way the body runs, so to speak, so that the damage is not created in the first place. And of course, it's also a much more effective approach because it can be used on people who are already in middle age or older and have already accumulated a whole bunch of damage um, <clears throat> throughout their lives. All right, so, um, well, all of these types of damage have now moved forward a great deal. One of them is stem cell therapies uh, to repair one type of damage, namely the loss of cells. And that was already going really well, even 10 years or more ago. So we actually at Science Research Foundation have not done much work in that area because, you know, it would be a drop in the ocean compared to the very large amount of work that's already going on. But the other types of damage have been much more neglected. And certainly 10 or 15 years ago, they were very neglected. And so we've kind of had to lead the charge. And we've done it pretty well. Um, in each of these cases, we have done really groundbreaking um, enabling work, early stage work in the laboratory, initially in cell culture and then mice, that have shown proof of concept, proof of principle, that these various types of damage can be repaired. And that's gone far enough along that over the past few years, most of those areas have been able to be spun out into actual startup companies in the private sector, which is a really good thing for us to have been able to do because it turns out that you can get people to provide a much larger amount of financial support for a project if those people think that they might make money back in the long run, rather than purely providing the support philanthropically. So a lot of these areas are now proceeding much more rapidly than they were a few years ago as a result of having been spun out in this way. You know, I work with a group called Aging Analytics. You may know them. <clears throat> they are in the UK. And uh, they're coming much more, yeah, much more here. Uh, and one of the things they have unavailable yet in the United States is a hedge fund, just what you're talking about. And that hedge fund has only to do with companies that are uh, either long-term already in the field of aging or startups in the field of aging or have some type of uh, usually biotech, biochemistry, could be many other things, even breakthroughs in transportation and mobility and um, it's very difficult for the, for the average person to understand the confluence of the connection between investing, the dollars, and also the science. But the fact, the true fact is that that is the case. So I'm going to bring up in, in a couple of minutes we have left before this segment is over, the FDA. Uh, I do know, and we all know, that there are, there are drugs or even beauty products in other countries that we can access that we can't get here because of the FDA. At the same time, we have some of the strongest drug breakthroughs here in the U.S. Uh, because drug companies are protected for a while if they do have a breakthrough. 
What's been the connection between the FDA and the science of aging in your experience? Yeah, it's a great question. So, um, of course, every country has its own regulatory framework. And there is a case that the regulatory framework in the U.S. and indeed in most of the industrialized world is too risk averse so that people die unnecessarily because drugs take a very long time to uh, be approved. Um, and uh, that, that outweighs the risk of people dying because a drug was approved too hastily. Um, but the situation with aging has got a lot better very recently. There is now an understanding on the part of the FDA that we really need to promote the development of medicines that have a very broad base. Uh, impact on many of the health problems of late life, rather than um, just addressing one particular silo, you know, whether it's Alzheimer's or cancer or whatever, because these things do have a generic interlocking, um, you know, uh, unified um, underpinning in the lifelong process of accumulation of damage in the body. Uh, So what's happened is that the FDA have actually approved a clinical trial for a very well-known and safe drug called metformin that will actually have an endpoint which is aging in all but name. The description of the endpoint is a terribly sophisticated combinatorial um, description of how people get sick in multiple different ways, Uh, but it is aging in all but name. And even though no one's going to make any money out of metformin because it's been off patent since before we were born, uh, nevertheless, as a Nevertheless, as a proof of concept, this is enormously important. Even if this trial, which has actually very recently um, obtained funding, even if this trial fails and metformin is not shown to have an impact on keeping people healthy late, late in life, nevertheless, the description of the trial can be reused. In other words, if and one of the things, Doctor. Unfortunately, we have a hard break. We have to be out in a couple of seconds. We'll be back to finish this very important, not just medical breakthrough, but I would say governmental breakthrough. We'll be back in a moment. You may think that I'm full of it, but that doesn't bother me, not even a bit, because I am happy and I freely admit I'm inappropriate for my age. Da-da-da-da. And hello, hello, hello. This is Adrian Berg, and this is Generation Bold, the Fountain of Truth. Let me give you a few websites that you should know about. If you have a topic or a particular person or question that has to do with aging, this is your show. Go to the website Adrian Berg, A-D-R-I-A-N-E-B-E-R-G.com, and let me know about it. There'll be a place to do that. If you want to uh, hear our um Uh, our old shows, our archived shows. If you want to get notification of new shows to come, go to generationboldradio.com and give us your email address. You'll also get notifications of the new blog posts on Aging for Beginners, our blog. Now, uh, I also want you to know the, I think, very important way of connecting with some of these issues of aging and aging research, and that would be the uh, the uh, website 
of our guest, sense.org, S-E-N-S, dot org. It's as simple as that. We're speaking today with Aubrey DeGray, uh, and Dr. DeGray is really a leader, uh, a biomedical gerontologist, a leader in rejuvenation research and in aging. And if you've listened even to a section of this show, you know that that is true. And what we were talking about right before the break and have a chance really to, to finish up was that it seems that the FDA is doing a little bit of a better job in allowing for uh, research that deals specifically with aging. And he was talking specifically about metformin and saying that although it will not be named a drug to cure aging or stop aging or prevent aging, in fact, uh, it could be, and even if it fails to be, the way and the process that's going through for its trials could be relevant to drugs in the future that might actually prevent, stop, or change aging. Now, could you bring us to the lab again, Dr. DeGray? Why is that so, even if metformin is not the golden ticket for anti-aging, that it could be so important? The reason this is so important is because of the statement of the trial, the structure of the way that the clinical trial for metformin has been described. Basically, the endpoint, in other words, the criterion that the investigators will use to decide whether metformin works or not, is a criterion that is very complicated in the way that it's actually worded, but it is aging in all but name. So it doesn't you know, really bite the bullet of saying aging is a condition that we, can, um, you know, that we can treat with medicines in principle, but it does effectively say that, which means that now, even though metformin itself may not actually work, and anyway, for sure, we know that no one's going to make any money out of it because it's off patent, nevertheless, it changes the incentive structure for big pharma enormously. It now <clears throat> means that, <clears throat> that a big pharma company that has a drug that seems to have very broad-based beneficial effects on the health of the elderly can be taken forward into a clinical trial and the exact same endpoint can be used for that trial that is currently being used or about to be used for metformin. And of course, for a drug like that, um, the company would be able to make money in the long run if it works. And therefore, there is a huge incentive to develop such drugs, which did not exist before. So even if this trial never occurred, it would still be a huge breakthrough at the level of regulation. And one of the things that public, my listeners, have to understand, it's hard to, to encapsulate this. We have been looking at aging from silos uh, with names like Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, cancer, heart disease, diabetes, and so on. And all this research has been had to be um, provable or uh, relatable to a particular disease. It is a paradigm shift, a real paradigm shift of what Dr. DeGray is talking about, which is not looking at the silos of different diseases, but holistically looking at aging as something that can be ended or cured or changed. And the name of his book is Ending Aging, the Rejuvenation Breakthroughs that Could Reverse Human Aging in Our Lifetime. And every one of those words is important because they really are paranoid, not next year, not 5,000 years from now, not, you know, after the next flood, but in our lifetime. It's a very, very big paradigm shift. 
But now I'm going to do a little bit negative, which I hate to do at the end. You have a uh, a lot a lot to say about Alzheimer's, and and the reason I bring it up is not curing Alzheimer's or even the medicine of Alzheimer's, but it is the specter of what it could be like to live longer. It may stop people from paying attention to what you say. Uh, is Alzheimer's and dementia one of those things that could be prevented, maybe cured? I don't know how you want to put that word with some of your research and with thinking of aging as a disease. It certainly is. Um, I mean, really, the word disease gets in the way here because whether we call aging a disease is not really the issue. The issue is whether we call some aspects of aging disease and diseases and other aspects not. Because that artificial distinction, which has no biological basis, is kind of the thing that entrenches the concept that um, you know, aging itself is kind of off limits to medicine. <coughs> Alzheimer's disease is indeed a, you know, a, an aspect of aging, whether we call it a disease or not. It's a complicated one, a multitude of different things are going wrong in the brain during Alzheimer's. And certainly the fact that we're seeing so much Alzheimer's in the world today is a consequence of the fact that it doesn't kill you very well. In other words, um, you can have really bad Alzheimer's for a long time before you die. And of course, people are not looking forward to that. But that absolutely the right way to think is that when we develop medicines that keep people healthy late in life, they will truly keep people healthy and useful. In other words, all of the aspects of aging, the ones that we call diseases and the ones we don't, will be prevented. So if one gets into this mindset of saying, oh, I don't think much of this business of living longer because I don't want to get Alzheimer's, that's just, a, just a, you know, it, 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 it's not even starting from the right place. We're not going to develop ways in which people stay alive for a long time in a poor state of health, whether it's with Alzheimer's or anything else. Because so this the is, longevity is simply a yeah. side effect of being healthy. Well, this is the point that I was hoping you would make, and I am so thrilled that you did, because aging can be terrific. And I will tell you that even in my writing, my editors say, don't use the word aging. Imagine that. For everybody out there, remember that there's a terrific book and go to sensesens.org. And my motto, I'll repeat it again, get out there, kids, and make it happen. I'm inappropriate.